the guy you see there on the left is Constantine. Christians are usually uh, pretty familiar with Constantine. Uh, he's the Roman emperor that legalized uh, the Christian faith in 313, uh, actually before he was baptized as a Christian, but in 313 he was the Roman ruler in the west, western portion of the Roman Empire, and he got together with a guy named Licinius, who was ruler in the area we would call the Balkans today, and together they, they put out what was called the Edict of Milan, and the Edict of Milan was hugely important for Christians in that day, it legalized Christianity. And if you remember, basically up until that point, both officially and unofficially, Christians were persecuted throughout the Roman Empire. So this was huge. So at this point in Roman history, churches and church property were returned, uh, Christian prisoners were freed, and the kind of official, if not always unofficial, but the official persecution of the Christian faith ended at least at that phase, that way, that time of life in the Roman Empire in 313. So that was a big deal. Uh, Christianity did not become the official state religion until about 380. But 100 years after Augustine in 410, uh, Rome was sacked uh, by King Alaric. He was a Visigoth, he was the Western Germanic king, and he and his army had been down in the Roman Empire they had been friend or foe to various uh, Roman leaders for some time, but in 410 they sacked Rome, and for three days they raped, murdered, and pillaged. Now at that time, Christianity was the official state religion, so this is part of what happened. You remember when Rome burned under Nero, Nero blamed the Christians. Well, that's essentially what happened in 410. And so the non-Christians in Rome said, look, this is the deal. This, this uh, our being overrun by Alaric would not have happened, this wouldn't have happened to our Roman city had we been worshiping the old state gods. And so in response to that, Augustine, who was the Bishop of Hippo, wrote a treatise to combat this argument that the sack of Rome was the fault of Christians and the Romans should never have gone over to the Christian God. Now his book is a pretty well-known title today, The City of God. <clears throat> when he penned it, it was The City of God Against the Pagans. And in the first half of that treatise, he basically shows through philosophy, logic, and history that the argument was simply unsound, that it was untenable from the start. You couldn't blame the Christians for the fact that Rome had been overrun. But in the second half of that, he developed this theme that on the earth, Basically, since the fall of angels and since the fall of Adam and Eve, there were on earth, if you will, this was his description, there were two competing cities. There was the city of man and there was the city of God. And the city of man was sort of man's version of the good life, but it was man disconnected from God. So if we were using terminology today, so Augustine talking about the city of man, the city of God, we would call the city of man today something like the world. You know, in 1 John, when John talks about the world or the flesh or the devil, the world is mankind organized as we see fit, but not under God's authority. So in that sense, true in that day as well, the city of man or the world is, is all the world of humanity on the earth, unsaved and separated from God, living life as we see fit, as we see best, according to our imaginations, our scheme of things. 
the city of man. If you think of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, he had two cities, the city of destruction, where Christians got to get out of. That would be the city of man or the world system and the celestial city, God's city. So, so Augustine's view is this. There's always two entities. There's two forces. There's two groups always at odds with each other. The city of man, unsaved man, unredeemed man, living life on his own as he sees fit. And God and God's city and God's work on the world as well. So we're in the Heroes and Villains series this morning. And we're going to start out uh, this morning with a villain. Uh, his name is fairly, fairly well known, but his story is short. But the implications of what he did, sort of the seeds he sowed, you'll see starting in Genesis, but actually not reaching their full fruit until Revelation. So the guy's name is Nimrod. And we'll be looking at him in just a minute in Genesis 10. So to catch up, sort of to bring us up to speed on where we're going this morning, remember Adam and Eve, they sinned in the garden, they fell, and in that fallen, separated condition, they started having kids. And lo and behold, some of those kids, they look like the image of God. They're worshipers. So you think of Abel, he was worshiping God. Or you think of Enoch, you think of Noah eventually. We'll talk about him in just a second. But you also had the city of man type lineage that was coming from Adam and Eve. So you had Cain, who's a murderer. You had his descendant Lamech, who's a murderer. You get to Genesis 6 and Noah's story, you're just 10 generations past the creation account. And God says, men are so violent. The world has been so corrupted already that I'm going to wipe everything out that breathes. I'm going to start over with Noah and his family. And so last week we looked at Noah as a hero of faith and really the epitome of enduring faith that he was given this gargantuan, massive task, probably took about 120 years for he and his sons to build a boat, football and a half field long, that would be for the salvation of he and his family and also any of the life on earth that breathed. And so Noah does that. He spends a year, about a year on the boat. The dry land reappears, the flood is over, God's done his work of judgment and things are going to start again. And so as Noah and his boys and their wives get off the boat, they're going to start repopulating the earth again. And so in Genesis 10, you've got these genealogies. And Shem, Ham, and Japheth, those three sons, they're going to repopulate the earth. And so when we get to Genesis 10, verses 8 through 12, that's where we'll start this morning. And this has to do with the line of Ham. So Ham fathers Cush, and this is where we pick up in verse 8. A Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. He was so noted for his power or his might that it became a phrase. And in fact, I don't hear it anymore these days, but it was not uncommon to hear someone described as he's a real Nimrod. When I was a kid, he's a pusher. He gets things done. He gets his own way. That's what he was like. Verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So we'll look at a map in a moment. But that's southern Iraq basically today. From that land, he goes up into what is, we would be called Assyria when this was written. He goes up the Tigris River Valley, and he built Another key city, Nineveh, and also Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Reason between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. So if this is all you know about Nimrod, 
there's nothing that's simply glaring as to this guy being a villain in God's economy, but we'll follow this up. We mentioned last week, sometimes God speaks in inference by inference. That is, he doesn't state something boldly or clearly, and that's a bit of the case with Nimrod. So that's a pretty good uh, image uh, about the guy we're talking about this morning. Nimrod's name means rebel, or we shall rebel. Now, did, did his dad name him that with the hope that he was going to raise a rebel? Don't know. I mean, if I was a father, I wouldn't name a son rebel. I don't want you to rebel against me and make my life difficult. Was he named that? And then did he live up to that name? Because that is what he is. He's a rebel for sure. Or did he grow up and, and was he such a rebel in action that that name was applied to him? Don't know for sure. But we know simply based on his name that this is a rebel. And guys, you know, in the United States, in culture, from James Dean forward, to be a rebel was a cool thing. This is not a cool thing. Nimrod is not a cool guy. He's a rebel against God and against all that's good. So he's a rebel. We know that. It says three times in that text, he's mighty. He's strong. That word is also translated elsewhere. He's a tyrant. Now, the text says that he's the first one on the earth to be mighty in some singular sense. But that same word has already been used in Genesis 6. And it described the people, the men of renown, right before God destroyed the world. This, this description ties Nimrod back to the kind of violent, powerful men that God wiped out in the flood. So he's, he's mighty, he's strong. We could also call him a tyrant. Verse 9, he's a mighty hunter. This says ESV, before the Lord. That might just mean, sort of innocuously, he's strong and God looks down from heaven and sees this guy, he's a strong guy. But more probably it means he's a mighty guy against God and God's things. The Hebrew, this doesn't always translate clearly. It's sometimes hard to know what meant, is meant to be inferred. But more probably, we're meant to see that he's against the Lord. He's a rebel. He's mighty and he's strong and he's probably violent in the ways that the men with a name were before the flood. That's what he's like. And then it tells us that he builds two key cities. And if you know your history, there's Babylonia in the bottom and you got Babylon there near the, the uh, Tigris and Euphrates rivers where they come together. And then if you follow that up to where it says Assyria, you've got Nineveh there on the Tigris River. So Nimrod founds two of the key cities in the ancient world. Uh, they were capitals of, of successive empires. We'll start with the second. So Nimrod's credited with founding, we'll start with Nineveh, two main cities that defined the ancient world before the Persians, the Medo-Persian empire began about 539 BC. So, this is taking what Nimrod started and then seeing where it goes. So we know who started it. We know something about him. And then what you see in the history of the Old Testament is where that thing goes, what it becomes like because it came from Nimrod. So Nineveh, you remember the description before the flood? Men are corrupting the world. They're corrupting themselves and they're extremely violent. Now, the guys in Nineveh, they were known for the extreme measure and degree of their cruelty. You know, when you think of the ISIS terrorism in the Middle East, when 
the revolution that seems to have wound down a bit started, they were beheading people. They were being as gruesome as they could be. They were throwing people off mountains and buildings. That would have been like the guys in Nineveh. They were notorious for their violence and their cruelty, the city that Nimrod founded. Not only that, but you remember in the book of Jonah, Nineveh is the city Jonah was sent to and didn't want to go to. He knew what the Ninevites were like, and he hated them, and he didn't want God to save them. But God compels him, that's the fish story, and, and he goes and he tells them, Nineveh, that great city, in 40 days God's going to judge you. And lo and behold, they repent. And he goes, Jonah goes in the reign of Jeroboam II, so this is in the early 700s BC. But do you remember what happens to Israel, the northern ten tribes, the nation of Israel? This would just be a few decades later in 722 BC. Because in 722, the people that had at least temporarily converted to Israel's God, they come in and they wipe out Israel, 722 BC. Israel doesn't exist as a nation after Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire comes in and wipes them out. They're gone. Now, this is also interesting. By the way, there's a lot of history this morning, so I hope that's helpful. It puts things together for me. It gives you a big picture. Nimrod's story starts in Genesis, but it doesn't end until Revelation 18. So you've got this uh, seeds are sown, and then you see where that thing grows, what it becomes. So the Assyrian Empire had this policy. If we capture a nation, we take the population out, and we redistribute them throughout our empire because we don't want any group big enough to rebel against us. So we separate them. Now, Jews were taken out of Israel, but you know what that also means? Pagans from other portions of the Assyrian Empire, they were brought in to the land of Israel. And what did they do? They married Jews who'd been left in the land. And what do we call that group of people? Those are the Samaritans. Now, when Jesus tells a parable, it's a parable of the good Samaritan. And we might think the Samaritans, that's a good thing. But biblically, we wouldn't think that, and the Jews wouldn't have thought that. So what happens, and you can read about this, I think, in 2 Kings. So what do you have? So you've got pagans that come in with their worship of false gods. They marry Jews who know Yahweh. And what do they do? What, what comes out of that? They develop their own religion. The Samaritans had their own mountain, their own temple, their own system of worship, and none of it was according to God's word. It was a syncretistic religion that was born of some truth and paganism, and it was wed together, and that was the Samaritan religion. That was part of the fruit, if you will, of Nimrod City brought into God's land was this religion that, in fact, didn't worship Yahweh. So you see in John 4, when Jesus interacts with the woman at the well, and she says, hey, you guys say Jerusalem's the place, but we worship on Mount Gerizim. Isn't that okay? Well, it wasn't okay. God was never in their religion. That's part of what came out of Nineveh. And then it was Nimrod's uh, other city, Babylon. It's interesting how one thing uh, displaces another. Nimrod's other city, Babylon, and the empire that rises from them, they destroy Nineveh in 612 BC. The Assyrian Empire is not quite done. They flee to Haran and then they, with Egypt, combat Babylon at the 605 Battle of Carchemish, and that's the end of the Assyrian Empire, and it's from Nimrod's other city, Babylon. 
So those cities were key cities. They were centers of power and influence uh, throughout the Middle East uh, for most of the time until the Medo-Persian Empire. So let's look at Babylon, or Babel, as it's called here. Now, Babel means the house or the gate of God. So Babel, Nimrod's building the gateway to God. That's the city he's constructing. And Babel or Babylon is the city that will destroy Judah and Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting that the two cities that Nimrod founds are the two cities that wipe out God's people. Now that's all done under God's sovereign plan, right? He was judging the Israelites. He judged Judah. He said he was going to do it. He said he was going to do it through a godless nation, Babylon. But it was Nimrod's cities that were used to destroy or to punish at least God's people temporarily. You think of Psalm 137, by the rivers or by the waters of Babylon we hung up our harps. And they said, hey, give us a song. Give us one of your songs from Zion. And we say, well, we can't sing. You know, we're not in our land. We're under judgment and it's in Babylon. That's Nimrod's other city. This text in Genesis 11 tells us about the founding of this city and the empire that follows it. So Genesis 11, 1 through 4. So this is Nimrod. This is Nimrod's city, and these are the people that are founding the city with him. The whole earth had one language in the same words. So it's after the ark. Noah and the boys get off. Every, everybody's got the same language. They're from the same parents. They've got the same view of life. They're coming with the same history, the same knowledge of God, the same language. And as people migrated, ESV reads from the east. Um, it's more likely toward the east. When you see in scripture, uh, God's people especially, but people generally moving to the east, it's almost always an indication that they're under judgment. So you remember when Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden, they are moved eastward. When Israel's taken captive, they move eastward. When Judah's taken captive, they move eastward. It's almost always, the direction east is almost always a sign of judgment. These people from the ark, they're moving east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar, southern Iraq, and they settled there. They say to one another, come and let us make bricks. Let's burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone. They had bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, bear with me as I work through some of this. Um, you might think I'm crediting too much, but sometimes uh, we need to pull out what God's planted in there. There's a little work sometimes required in these texts. So look at what they've said. Uh, let us make bricks. Now, notice it could have just said they built with bricks, but it doesn't. It says they had brick for stone. Why does, it, why does God tell us they didn't just brick, build with bricks, but they had bricks instead of stone? So if you look in the Old Testament, when God has men build an altar for his worship, what do they build with? Stone. It's uncut stone. When God has his temple built, what's it built with? It's built with stone. Now, uh, bricks are a fine thing, guys. We live in a, we're, we're meeting in a building that has a brick exterior. This is not a lesson about the evil of bricks, but this is the inference. This is the inference. They're not building with what God gave. They're using their imagination to create something else. They're not gonna build with stone, they're gonna build with brick. They, they're gonna create their own building product. 
You know, when archaeologists dig up these places today, and, and they do, and they have for about almost 200 years now, do you know what's left of these brick structures? Nothing. What they'll find is when they excavate a city, and they know they've, we've seen Nineveh, we've seen all these old cities in, in Babylon in the Assyrian area. We've dug most of these places up. If you go to the London Museum, you can see all the stuff that's come out of those old palaces and libraries. It's fascinating. But what's left of those brick walls is dark lines in the ground. That's all that's left of them. They don't last. But the thought here is that these guys that are going to build this city, that's going to be their gateway to heaven. We're going to regain paradise. We're going to build it with bricks that we've come up with. It's our imagination from the beginning. It's our version of building and building blocks that we're going to build this thing with. You get to verse 5, which we didn't read. We're meant when we see this passage to know this is all man's doing. This is not God's. Babel is not God's idea. Because in verse 5, God says, let's go down and see what's happening there. God's not part of the building process. He says, we'll go down. Now, he doesn't need to go down. He's omniscient. But it's as if he says, something is going on. Men are doing something. I'm not part of it. Let's go down and see what it is. So we're building with bricks our version of construction. They also say, let's build a city. Let's build a city for ourselves. So we understand that the city of Babel or Babylon would be man's idea of a city. This goes to Augustine's phrase, the city of man. Babel is the original city of man. It's man's idea. Nimrod and his followers are saying, we'll build our place. We're independent from God, and we're going to thrive on our own terms. Now, notice this, too. God had said in the creation account, I want you to fill the earth. But the first city is a way of not filling the earth. They say, we don't want to fill the earth. We want to gather ourselves together so that we can be safe. We don't want to fulfill that great commission God gave in the creation account. We want to stay together so that we're safe, among other things. So they're going to build a city. And they're going to build a tower with its top in the heavens. So they're going to build a tower. Now, these are smart people, by the way. So they don't think that that tower reaches into the stars, right? They're smart. They're smarter, I think, than we are, okay? I think our intellects over time have diminished, but our body of knowledge has increased, so we appear smarter than they were, but I don't think, I think we're not as smart. They knew what they were doing. So imagine this. Back in those days, this doesn't really show it as well, if you built towers in those days, they were what we call ziggurats. So they were stair-step structures. The original uh, pyramids in Egypt were stair-step structures. So if you were outside the city of Babylon, you were approaching it, and you saw that tower, what would it look like? Especially think of this. Imagine it's a cloudy day and there's low-hanging clouds. And you see that, that tower from a distance, what would it look like? It would look like a stairway right into heaven. And that was their thought. This is their place of worship, and this is where man, by man's devices, regains paradise, as it were. We're going to regain heaven by our own means, our own imagination, our concept of this. We can do this. We'll do it together. We're going to build a city, and here's our tower, and we're going to get back to heaven. This had nothing to do with what God was up to. This is the beginning of man-made religion. Guys, all religions, all religions in the world are a repudiation of Genesis 3.15, where God says, one day, I'm going to save you. You're going to get back to paradise. I'll save you because I'm going to send the seed of the woman. I'm going to send a savior for you. 
and you'll be able to re be restored to paradise. But every religion on the world that doesn't follow Yahweh and Christ is part of the city of man and it's man's version of salvation. We're going to work our way back to heaven. And of course, it's the opposite. If we're to be saved, God must save us. God must come down to, from heaven to earth to save us. Man cannot build his way back to heaven from earth to heaven. It doesn't work. But that's exactly what was going on in Babylon and at the tower there. Now notice too, it says they're going to make a name for themselves. And this is significant too. Um, they're going to make a name for themselves. So right before the flood, and you know, if you read one of the things that's helpful, if you read biblical stories, especially narratives, if you read the whole narrative, it's helpful because it gives you context. So if I'm reading Genesis 10 and, and Genesis 6 and fresh, is fresh in my mind, and it says uh, these men, they're going to make a name for themselves. The violent men in Genesis 6, they were men of renown. That means they were men with a name. They were well known. And these people are saying, we're going to make a name for ourselves. And this, this goes a couple different ways. They say, we're going to create our own identity. We're going to create our own significance. We're going to define who we are, what we are, what we're like. But it's also, it, it is a fist in God's eye, if you will, because the one in authority is the one who names. So in the creation account, God says day one, day two, sun, moon, and stars. When he, named, when he makes Adam, he names Adam, Adam. In the Hebrew, Adam, Adam, is man. God names him. When God creates Adam, he gives him authority. What does Adam do? He names the animals. So what these people are saying, we define ourselves. We define who we are. We define what we're like. And there's no authority greater than ourselves because we give ourselves the name we choose. So this is the, the individual, this is man as his own God. We create our own religion. We create our own version of worship. And we give ourselves our own name. We define ourselves. And guys, in part, what was going on at Babel, that's exactly what's going on in the earth today and certainly in the United States and Western culture, when you think of the LGBTQI, throat, keep just adding letters movement, what we are saying is we'll define our sexuality, we'll define our preferences, we'll, we'll redefine marriage, we'll redefine our humanity, we'll redefine anything and everything we want, we will give ourselves a name. It's the same spirit that's at work today that was building Babel back in the day as well. So we're gonna name ourselves. So Nimrod city, the city of man on the earth, if you will, was mankind's cooperative attempt at rising above his given station to something greater. And if you remember way back when we talked about what a villain was, Satan was the ultimate villain. A villain in God's economy is one who refuses to fulfill God's purpose and plan for that individual in the place and time God's put them. You remember Jesus was the model of faithfulness, godliness, heroism. He filled up the purposes of God for his life at the time and the place God put him. But villain, Satan says, I'm going to redefine myself. I'm going to ascend. I'm going to become something different and something better. And that's exactly what you see in the city of Babylon. Now, we call, we call the city of man today, in New Testament language, we call it the world the world, the world, the flesh and the devil, the world is mankind opposed to God. And guys, this means you and I, we live in the city of man. 
We're inhabitants of the city of God, right? Our citizenship is in heaven from which we wait a savior. The new Jerusalem, the city of God ultimately, is our home. We're ambassadors here, we're on temporary assignment, but we're on assignment in the city of man. The world opposed to God is the time and place we live. And that means that you and I, if we don't have filters in place, we are breathing the air of Babylon. We are breathing in the air of Nimrod, this rebellious spirit that says we'll do things our way, our terms, our way. We've got to have filters in place. If you're one of the guys here, if you're 16 or up, I hope you'll come to the men's advance. Tom Lindsay's going to be talking about being thoughtful and about the filters we have or don't have as to what is influencing us. What are we taking in? What, what is affecting our view of things? Are we more at home in the city of man than the city of God? Where are our affections and what's informing those affections? It's hugely important. You still see a lot of God's common grace in mu music, movies, art, literature. But, <laughs> but if you don't have filters for that, if you can't separate the precious from the worthless, then what you find is you start feeling really comfortable in Babylon, more comfortable there than in the city of God, in the New Jerusalem. You feel less a resident of heaven on assignment than you do, I'm at home right now in the city of man. We've got to use filters in place. Now, Babylon uh, comes up again right at the end of the Bible in, Gen in uh, Revelation 17 and 18. And what you see, so in Genesis, you see the not only the erection of the city of Babylon and man's opposition to God, but you see sort of the formation of all the things that are going to oppose God and God's Christ. And when you get to the book of Revelation, the last book, you see God winding up all those oppositional forces. And so Babylon is built as a replacement for the city of God. It's the city of man. And what you see in Revelation 17 and 18 is God destroying Babylon. Babylon the great is fallen is fallen. God destroys it. Some people think today that Babylon the great is the literal city of Babylon that... Uh, Saddam Hussein was rebuilding, that that city is still going to rise from the partially rebuilt ashes, and that will be Babylon the Great that God destroys. Some people think Rome is Babylon the Great. It's not clear, and, and that's not a huge point of contention for me, whatever you call it. But God says there's going to come a time in which Babylon, the city of man, is destroyed. He removes it before he displays the city of God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God. So that's still yet to come. So I want to wind down with a contrast. So Nimrod, the rebel, the mighty man against the Lord, builds a city that becomes the seed, basically for all of man's cooperative efforts of religion, art, commerce, you name it, against God. Not part of what God's up to, opposed to God. Man as we see ourselves, as we want to be. But God's always been at work. So again, think of context here. Nimrod sounds like the guys that God destroyed in Genesis 6. So if I'm just reading through my Bible and flipping from one chapter to the other, when I read about Babylon in chapter 11, when I turn the page, what do I find in chapter 12? All of a sudden I find this guy, this shepherd guy, this Abram from Ur of the Chaldees. Where is Ur of the Chaldees located, by the way? 
pretty close to Babylon. And God calls Abram out of Babylon. And listen to what he says. We're going to look at Abraham next time, but I, I want to bring this up this morning to show the contrast, man's work and God's work, man's city and God's city. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Lord, Yahweh, says to Abram, his name hadn't been changed yet, Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. So contrast this guy and what God's doing with Nimrod and Babylon. God's in charge here, not man. Five, five times God says, I will. God doesn't have to come down to see what Abram's doing. God says, this is my work, my way. This is what I'm doing. Five times God says, I will. He calls Abram to go from the land of the east to the land of the west. The promised land is the land in the west. God will make of Abram a great nation. He doesn't say just a city. Abram, I'm going to create a new nation and it's going to come from you. God says he will make Abram's name great and he changes his name. Abram doesn't say, I want a great name. God says, I'm going to make your name great. And then he changes his name. Abram is God's man. And his name goes from Abram father to Abraham father of nations. God will be Abram's protection. He doesn't have to found a city to be protected. Yahweh is his protection. And God will bless all families in the earth through Abram. Babylon, Nimrod's city and seed has cursed the earth since it was built. Because it was that initial raising of the city of man against the city of God. In contrast, God's going to use Abram to bless all families of the earth. We know eventually that means through his son, the Lord Jesus. Now, it doesn't stop there. Check this out. It'll be some time before we get to Jacob in our series through the heroes and villains. But in Genesis 28, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, starts out looking a lot like Nimrod. Do you remember how he's born, what he's doing? He's hanging on to his brother's heel. And his name means supplanter. He's the guy that wants to replace somebody else. And he's a deceiver. And so what's he do? He tricks his brother. He tricks his father. This is not a godly guy. But what happens to him? He's going to get a wife. And as he heads for the back country to get his wife, what happens? And this isn't his doing. This is God's doing. He went to sleep on a rock. And what happened that night? He has a dream. And what does he see? He doesn't see a ziggurat. He sees a ladder. And the ladder goes from earth to heaven. And on the ladder are the angels of God ascending and descending. Nimrod tries to build a tower that goes to heaven. It was huge. It was massive. And it was impressive. Jacob's asleep on a rock in the middle of nowhere. And God shows him a ladder that goes from earth to heaven. God's access, if you will, or our access to God is God's doing. And this is a lowly ladder. It's not a big, powerful tower. God was at work through Abram and through Jacob. And it's always God's sovereign will. He's doing it his way. And in their day, this did not look impressive. This did not look like Babylon. You wouldn't have said, man, what a great thing. Or if you met Jacob back in the day, you might not have thought he was all that great either. 
But God was at work. This was the city of God, if you will, being built. This invasion from God into the earth to establish his own city and his own work. Today, you guys know, uh, God has a presence on earth today, right? The city of God on earth today is Wine and Lamb Church. It's the church of Jesus Christ on the earth today, right? That's what Peter says. It's the pillar and support of the truth. When God shows up on the earth today, where is it? It's in you and me. It's in the household of faith. It's through Christians. How are people in the world today, the city of man, going to hear about Christ? Be from people from the city of God, right? You invite people to church, you share the gospel because the, those people living in the world, the city of man, they need to hear about what God is up to in Christ, God's idea of salvation. How do we regain paradise? Do you remember what Jesus said in John's gospel? He said, you're gonna see greater things than these in John one. And he said, you'll see the, the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Jesus is the latter. He's the one that broaches the chasm between the city of man and the city of God, the heavenly, the new Jerusalem. So God's at work. Everything Nimrod was doing was an act of rebellion against God. And we want to be very careful in the world today. We're in the city of man. We're breathing its air. It's all around us. You can't get out of it. That's okay. But we're citizens of heaven. We're members of the household of faith. We're members of the new Jerusalem, the city of God that is yet to come. So we want to be careful that we know where our hearts are. So the city of man, the world opposed to God's Messiah, develops lots of things, lots of refinements that in and of themselves may not be bad at all, but they may be indications of somebody's heart or where our heart is taking us, not towards God, but away. Nimrod and the builders of Babel wanted to make a name for themselves to give themselves significance to determine their own identities and ends. And, and isn't it interesting in that little shepherd story, it was to Abram, this wandering shepherd, that God said, I'm going to make your name great. And then think of this too, thinking of names and, and symbolism and, and uh, importance. And then it's to Abraham's seed, it's to the Lord Jesus that God says, in Philippians 2, that is to Christ I've given what? The name above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that he is Christ to the glory of God the Father. So this thing with Nimrod and names and cities and Babel and the city of man, it's still going on today. It's not over. We're citizens of the city of heaven. We're ambassadors in the city of man. Paul says we are ambassadors uh, pleading with people, be reconciled to God through Christ, not your form of religion, not as you see fit, but as God see fits through the Savior, he's provided. Jesus is the stairway to heaven. He's the way back to paradise. So we want to be careful. We live in the city of man. Uh, who's got our heart? What's got our heart? Are we looking for the new Jerusalem? Are we looking for Christ who reigns when the when the uh, nations of this world have become the nations of our God and of his Christ. That's what we're looking for. If you would, stand, and let's read this together to close out this time. Worship team will come up. And, and just thinking about who we belong to and where we're heading, let's wind down with Revelation 21, 2 through 4. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Amen.